Part Four, Gorgias, by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Who is the true and who the false statesman? The true statesman is he who brings order out of disorder, who first organizes and then administers the government of his own country, and having made a nation, seeks to reconcile the national interests with those of Europe and of mankind. He is not a mere theorist, nor yet a dealer in expedients. The whole and the parts grow together in his mind. While the head is conceiving, the hand is executing. Although obliged to descend to the world, he is not of the world. His thoughts are fixed not on power or riches or extension of territory, but on an ideal state, in which all the citizens have an equal chance of health and life, and the highest education is within the reach of all, and the moral and intellectual qualities of every individual are freely developed, and the idea of good is the animating principle of the whole. Not the attainment of freedom alone, or of order alone, but how to unite freedom with order is the problem which he has to solve. The statesman who places before himself these lofty aims has undertaken a task which will call forth all his powers. He must control himself before he can control others. He must know mankind before he can manage them. He has no private likes or dislikes. He does not conceal personal enmity under the disguise of moral or political principle. Such meannesses, into which men too often fall unintentionally, are absorbed in the consciousness of his mission, and in his love for his country and for mankind. He will sometimes ask himself what the next generation will say of him, not because he is careful of posthumous fame, but because he knows that the result of his life as a whole will then be more fairly judged. He will take time for the execution of his plans, not hurrying them on when the mind of a nation is unprepared for them, but like the ruler of the universe himself, working in the appointed time, for he knows that human life, if not long in comparison with eternity, republic, is sufficient for the fulfillment of many great purposes. He knows, too, that the work will be still going on when he is no longer here, and he will sometimes, especially when his powers are failing, think of that other city of which the pattern is in heaven, republic. The false politician is the serving man of the state. In order to govern men he becomes like them. Their minds are married in conjunction. They bear themselves like vulgar and tyrannical masters, and he is their obedient servant. The true politician, if he would rule men, must make them like himself. He must educate his party until they cease to be a party. He must breathe into them the spirit which will hereafter give form 
to their institutions. Politics with him are not a mechanism for seeming what he is not, or for carrying out the will of the majority. Himself a representative man, he is the representative not of the lower, but of the higher elements of the nation. There is a better, as well as a worse, public opinion of which he seeks to lay hold, as there is also a deeper current of human affairs in which he is borne up when the waves nearer the shore are threatening him. He acknowledges that he cannot take the world by force. Two or three moves on the political chessboard are all that he can foresee. Two or three weeks moves on the political chessboard are all that he can foresee. Two or three weeks or months are granted to him in which he can provide against a coming struggle. But he knows also that there are permanent principles of politics which are always tending to the well-being of states, better administration, better education, the reconciliation of conflicting elements, increased security against external enemies. These are not of today or yesterday, but are the same in all times and under all forms of government. Then, when the storm descends and the winds blow, though he knows not beforehand the hour of danger, the pilot, not like Plato's captain in the Republic, half-blind and deaf, but with penetrating eye and quick ear, is ready to take command of the ship and guide her into port. The false politician asks not what is true, but what is the opinion of the world, not what is right, but what is expedient. The only measures of which he approves are the measures which will pass. He has no intention of fighting an uphill battle. He keeps the roadway of politics. He is unwilling to incur the persecution and enmity which political convictions would entail upon him. He begins with popularity, and in fair weather sails gallantly along. But unpopularity soon follows him, for men expect their leaders to be better and wiser than themselves, to be their guides in danger, their saviors in extremity. They do not really desire them to obey all the ignorant impulses of the popular mind, and if they fail them in a crisis they are disappointed. Then, as Socrates says, the cry of ingratitude is heard, which is most unreasonable, for the people, who have been taught no better, have done what might be expected of them, and their statesmen have received justice at their hands. The true statesman is aware that he must adapt himself to times and circumstances. He must have allies if he is to fight against the world. He must enlighten public opinion. He must accustom his followers to act together, although he is not the mere executor of the will of the majority he must win over the majority to himself. He is their leader and not their follower. But in order to lead, he must also follow. He will neither exaggerate nor undervalue the power of a statesman, neither adopting the laissez-faire nor the paternal government principle. But he will, whether he is dealing with children in politics or with full-grown men, seek to do for the people what the government can do for them. And what, 
from imperfect education or deficient powers of combination they cannot do for themselves he knows that if he does too much for them they will do nothing and that if he does nothing for them they will in some states of society be utterly helpless for the many cannot exist without the few if the material force of a country is from below wisdom and experience are from above it is not a small part of human evils which kings and governments make or cure the statesman is well aware that a great purpose carried out consistently during many years will at last be executed he is playing for a stake which may be partly determined by some accident and therefore he will allow largely for the unknown element of politics but the game being one in which chance and skill are combined if he plays long enough he is certain of victory he will not be always consistent for the world is changing and though he depends upon the support of a party he will remember that he is the minister of the whole he lives not for the present but for the future and he is not at all sure that he will be appreciated either now or then for he may have the existing order of society against him and may not be remembered by a distant posterity there are always discontented idealists in politics who like socrates in the gorgias find fault with all statesmen past as well as present not accepting the greatest names of history mankind have an uneasy feeling that they ought to be better governed than they are just as the actual philosopher falls short of the one wise man so does the actual statesman fall short of the ideal and so partly from vanity and egotism but partly also from a true sense of the faults of eminent men a temper of dissatisfaction and criticism springs up among those who are ready enough to acknowledge the inferiority of their own powers no matter whether a statesman makes high professions or none at all they are reduced sooner or later to the same level and sometimes the more unscrupulous man is better esteemed than the more conscientious because he has not equally deceived expectations such sentiments may be unjust but they are widely spread we constantly find them recurring in reviews and newspapers and still oftener in private conversation we may further observe that the art of government while in some respects tending to improve has in others a tendency to degenerate as institutions become more popular governing for the people cannot easily be combined with governing by the people the interests of classes are too strong for the ideas of the statesman who takes a comprehensive view of the whole according to socrates the true governor will find ruin or death staring him in the face and will only be induced to govern from the fear of being governed by a worse man than himself republic and in modern times though the world has grown milder and the terrible consequences which plato foretells no longer await an english statesman any one who is not actuated by a blind ambition will only undertake from a sense of duty a work in which he is most likely to fail and even if he succeed 
will rarely be rewarded by the gratitude of his own generation. Socrates, who is not a politician at all, tells us that he is the only real politician of his time. Let us illustrate the meaning of his words by applying them to the history of our own country. He would have said that not Pitt or Fox or Canning or Sir R. Peel are the real politicians of their time, but Locke, Hume, Adam Smith, Bentham, Ricardo. These, during the greater part of their lives, occupied an inconsiderable space in the eyes of the public. They were private persons. Nevertheless, they sowed in the minds of men seeds which in the next generation have become an irresistible power. Herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. We may imagine with Plato an ideal statesman in whom practice and speculation are perfectly harmonized, for there is no necessary opposition between them, but experience shows that they are commonly divorced. The ordinary politician is the interpreter or executor of the thoughts of others, and hardly ever brings to the birth a new political conception. One or two only in modern times, like the Italian statesman Cavour, have created the world in which they moved. The philosopher is naturally unfitted for political life. His great ideas are not understood by the many. He is a thousand miles away from the questions of the day. Yet, perhaps, the lives of thinkers, as they are stiller and deeper, are also happier than the lives of those who are more in the public eye. They have the promise of the future, though they are regarded as dreamers and visionaries by their own contemporaries. And when they are no longer here, those who would have been ashamed of them during their lives claim kindred with them, and are proud to be called by their names. Compare Thucydides. Who is the true poet? Plato expels the poets from his republic because they are allied to sense, because they stimulate the emotions, because they are thrice removed from the ideal truth. And in a similar spirit he declares in the Gorgias that the stately muse of tragedy is a votary of pleasure and not of truth. In modern times we almost ridicule the idea of poetry admitting of a moral. The poet and the prophet, or preacher, in primitive antiquity, are one and the same, but in later ages they seem to fall apart. The great art of novel writing, that peculiar creation of our own and the last century, which, together with the sister art of review writing, threatens to absorb all literature, has even less of seriousness in her composition. Do we not often hear the novel writer censured for attempting to convey a lesson to the minds of his readers? Yet the true office of a poet or writer of fiction is not merely to give amusement, or to be the expression of the feelings of mankind, good or bad, or even to increase our knowledge of human nature. There have been poets in modern times, such as Goethe or Wordsworth, who have not forgotten their high vocation of teachers, and the two greatest of the Greek dramatists owe their sublimity to their ethical character. The noblest truths, sung of in the purest and sweetest language, are still the proper material of poetry. The poet clothes them with beauty, and has a power of making them enter into the hearts and memories of men. 
he has not only to speak of themes above the level of ordinary life, but to speak of them in a deeper and tenderer way than they are ordinarily felt, so as to awaken the feeling of them in others. The old he makes young again, the familiar principle he invests with a new dignity. He finds a noble expression for the commonplaces of morality and politics. He uses the things of sense so as to indicate what is beyond. He raises us through earth to heaven. He expresses what the better part of us would fain say, and the half-conscious feeling is strengthened by the expression. He is his own critic, for the spirit of poetry and of criticism are not divided in him. His mission is not to disguise men from themselves, but to reveal to them their own nature, and make them better acquainted with the world around them. True poetry is the remembrance of youth, of love, the embodiment in words of the happiest and holiest moments of life, of the noblest thoughts of man, of the greatest deeds of the past. The poet of the future may return to his greater calling of the prophet or teacher. Indeed, we hardly know what may not be effected for the human race by a better use of the poetical and imaginative faculty. The reconciliation of poetry, as of religion, with truth, may still be possible. Neither is the element of pleasure to be excluded, for when we substitute a higher pleasure for a lower, we raise men in the scale of existence. Might not the novelist, too, make an ideal, or rather many ideals, of social life, better than a thousand sermons? Plato, like the Puritans, is too much afraid of poetic and artistic influences, but he is not without a true sense of the noble purposes to which art may be applied. Republic Modern poetry is often a sort of plaything, or, in Plato's language, a flattery, a sophistry, or sham, in which, without any serious purpose, the poet lends wings to his fancy and exhibits his gifts of language and metre. Such an one seeks to gratify the taste of his readers. He has the savoir-faire, or trick of writing, but he has not the higher spirit of poetry. He has no conception that true art should bring order out of disorder, that it should make provision for the soul's highest interest, that it should be pursued only with a view to the improvement of the citizens. He ministers to the weaker side of human nature, republic. He idealizes the sensual. He sings the strain of love in the latest fashion. Instead of raising men above themselves, he brings them back to the tyranny of the many masters, from which all his life long a good man has been praying to be delivered. And often, forgetful of measure and order, he will express not that which is truest, but that which is strongest. Instead of a great and nobly executed subject, perfect in every part, some fancy of a heated brain is worked out with the strangest incongruity. He is not the master of his words, but his words, perhaps borrowed from another, the faded reflection of some French or German or Italian writer, have the better of him. Though we are not going to banish the poets, how can we suppose that such utterances have any healing or life-giving influence on the minds of men? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Art, then, must be true, 
and politics must be true, and the life of man must be true, and not a seeming or sham. In all of them order has to be brought out of disorder, truth out of error and falsehood. This is what we mean by the greatest improvement of man, and so, having considered in what way we can best spend the appointed time, we leave the result with God. Plato does not say that God will order all things for the best, compare Phaedo, but he indirectly implies that the evils of this life will be corrected in another, and as we are very far from the best imaginable world at present, Plato here, as in the Phaedo and Republic, supposes a purgatory or place of education for mankind in general, and for a very few a Tartarus or hell. The myth which terminates the dialogue is not the revelation, but rather, like all similar descriptions, whether in the Bible or Plato, the veil of another life, for no visible thing can reveal the invisible. Of this Plato, unlike some commentators on scripture, is fully aware. Neither will he dogmatize about the manner in which we are born again, republic. Only he is prepared to maintain the ultimate triumph of truth and right, and declares that no one, not even the wisest of the Greeks, can affirm any other doctrine without being ridiculous. There is a further paradox of ethics, in which pleasure and pain are held to be indifferent, and virtue at the time of action and without regard to consequences is happiness. From this elevation or exaggeration of feeling, Plato seems to shrink. He leaves it to the Stoics in a later generation to maintain that when impaled or on the rack the philosopher may be happy. Compare Republic. It is observable that in the Republic he raises this question, but it is not really discussed. The veil of the ideal state, the shadow of another life, are allowed to descend upon it and it passes out of sight. The martyr or sufferer in the cause of right or truth is often supposed to die in raptures, having his eye fixed on a city which is in heaven. But if there were no future, might he not still be happy in the performance of an action which was attended only by a painful death? He himself may be ready to thank God that he was thought worthy to do him the least service, without looking for a reward. The joys of another life may not have been present to his mind at all. Do we suppose that the medieval saint, St. Bernard, St. Francis, St. Catherine of Siena, or the Catholic priest who lately devoted himself to death by a lingering disease that he might solace and help others, was thinking of the sweets of heaven? No. The work was already heaven to him and enough. Much less will the dying patriot be dreaming of the praises of man or of an immortality of fame. The sense of duty, of right, and trust in God will be sufficient, and as far as the mind can reach, in that hour. If he were certain that there were no life to come, he would not have wished to speak or act otherwise than he did in the cause of truth or of humanity. Neither, on the other hand, will he suppose that God has forsaken him, or that the future is to be a mere blank to him. The greatest act of faith, the only faith which cannot pass away, is his who has not known 
but yet has believed. A very few among the sons of men have made themselves independent of circumstances, past, present, or to come. He who has attained to such a temper of mind has already present with him eternal life. He needs no arguments to convince him of immortality. He has in him already a principle stronger than death. He who serves man without the thought of reward is deemed to be a more faithful servant than he who works for hire. May not the service of God, which is the more disinterested, be in like manner the higher? And although only a very few in the course of the world's history, Christ himself being one of them, have attained to such a noble conception of God and of the human soul, yet the ideal of them may be present to us, and the remembrance of them be an example to us, and their lives may shed a light on many dark places both of philosophy and theology. The Myths of Plato The myths of Plato are a phenomenon unique in literature. There are four longer ones. These occur in the Phaedrus, Phaedo, Gorgias, and Republic. That in the Republic is the most elaborate and finished of them. Three of these greater myths, namely those contained in the Phaedo, the Gorgias, and the Republic, relate to the destiny of human souls in a future life. The magnificent myth in the Phaedrus treats of the immortality, or rather the eternity of the soul, in which is included a former as well as a future state of existence. To these may be added, 1. The myth, or rather fable, occurring in the statesman, in which the life of innocence is contrasted with the ordinary life of man and the consciousness of evil. 2. The legend of the island of Atlantis, an imaginary history, which is a fragment only, commenced in the Timaeus and continued in the Critias. 3. The much less artistic fiction of the foundation of the Cretan colony, which is introduced in the preface to the laws, but soon falls into the background. 4. The beautiful but rather artificial tale of Prometheus and Epimetheus, narrated in his rhetorical manner by Protagoras in the dialogue called after him. 5. The speech at the beginning of the Phaedrus, which is a parody of the orator Lysias, the rival speech of Socrates and the recantation of it. To these may be added 6. The tale of the grasshoppers, and 7. The tale of Thamus and of Thuth, both in the Phaedrus. 8. The parable of the cave, Republic, in which the previous argument is recapitulated, and the nature and degrees of knowledge having been previously set forth in the abstract are represented in a picture. 9. The fiction of the earth-born men, Republic, compare laws, in which by the adaptation of an old tradition Plato makes a new beginning for his society. 10. The myth of Aristophanes respecting the division of the sexes, Symposium. 11. The parable of the noble captain, the pilot, and the mutinous sailors, Republic in which is represented the relation of the better part of the world and of the philosopher 
to the mob of politicians. 12. The ironical tale of the pilot who plies between Athens and Aegina, charging only a small payment for saving men from death, the reason being that he is uncertain whether to live or die is better for them. Gorgias. 13. The treatment of freemen and citizens by physicians and of slaves by their apprentices, a somewhat labored figure of speech intended to illustrate the two different ways in which the laws speak to men. Laws. There also occur in Plato continuous images, some of them extend over several pages, appearing and reappearing at intervals, such as the bees stinging and stingless, paupers and thieves, in the eighth book of the Republic, who are generated in the transition from democracy to oligarchy. The sun, which is to the visible world what the idea of good is to the intellectual, in the sixth book of the Republic. The composite animal, having the form of a man, but containing under a human skin a lion and a many-headed monster, Republic. The great beast, i.e. the populace, and the wild beast within us, meaning the passions which are always liable to break out. The animated comparisons of the degradation of philosophy by the arts to the dishonored maiden, and of the tyrant to the parricide, who beats his father, having first taken away his arms. The dog, who is your only philosopher, the grotesque and rather paltry image of the argument wandering about without a head, laws, which is repeated, not improved, from the Gorgias, the argument personified as veiling her face, republic, as engaged in a chase, as breaking upon us in a first, second, and third wave. On these figures of speech the changes are rung many times over. It is observable that nearly all these parables or continuous images are found in the Republic, that which occurs in the Theaetetus of the midwifery of Socrates is perhaps the only exception. To make the list complete, the mathematical figure of the number of the state, Republic, or the numerical interval which separates king from tyrant should not be forgotten. The myth in the Gorgias is one of those descriptions of another life which, like the sixth Aeneid of Virgil, appear to contain reminiscences of the mysteries. It is a vision of the rewards and punishments which await good and bad men after death. It supposes the body to continue and to be in another world what it has become in this. It includes a paradiso, purgatorio, and inferno like the sister myths of the Phaedo and the Republic. The inferno is reserved for great criminals only. The argument of the dialogue is frequently referred to, and the meaning breaks through so as rather to destroy the liveliness and consistency of the picture. The structure of the fiction is very slight. The chief point or moral being that in the judgments of another world there is no possibility of concealment. Zeus has taken from men the power of foreseeing death, and brings together the souls both of them and their judges naked and undisguised at the judgment seat. Both are exposed to view, stripped of the veils and clothes which might prevent them 
from seeing into or being seen by one another. The myth of the Phaedo is of the same type, but it is more cosmological and also more poetical. The beautiful and ingenious fancy occurs to Plato that the upper atmosphere is an earth and heaven in one, a glorified earth, fairer and purer than that in which we dwell. As the fishes live in the ocean, mankind are living in a lower sphere, out of which they put their heads for a moment or two and behold a world beyond. The earth which we inhabit is a sediment of the coarser particles which drop from the world above, and is to that heavenly earth what the desert and the shores of the ocean are to us. A part of the myth consists of description of the interior of the earth, which gives the opportunity of introducing several mythological names and of providing places of torment for the wicked. There is no clear distinction of soul and body. The spirits beneath the earth are spoken of as souls only, yet they retain a sort of shadowy form when they cry for mercy on the shores of the lake. And the philosopher alone is said to have got rid of the body. All the three myths in Plato which relate to the world below have a place for repentant sinners, as well as other homes or places for the very good and very bad. It is a natural reflection, which is made by Plato elsewhere, that the two extremes of human character are rarely met with, and that the generality of mankind are between them. Hence a place must be found for them. In the myth of the Phaedo, they are carried down the river Acheron to the Acherusian lake, where they dwell and are purified of their evil deeds, and receive the rewards of their good. There are also incurable sinners, who are cast into Tartarus, there to remain as the penalty of atrocious crimes. These suffer everlastingly. And there is another class of hardly curable sinners, who are allowed from time to time to approach the shores of the Acherusian lake, where they cry to their victims for mercy, which, if they obtain, they come out into the lake and cease from their torments. Neither this, nor any of the three greater myths of Plato, nor perhaps any allegory or parable relating to the unseen world, is consistent with itself. The language of philosophy mingles with that of mythology. Abstract ideas are transformed into persons, figures of speech into realities. These myths may be compared with the Pilgrim's Progress of Bunyan, in which discussions of theology are mixed up with the incidents of travel, and mythological personages are associated with human beings. They are also garnished with names and phrases taken out of Homer, and with other fragments of Greek tradition. The myth of the Republic is more subtle and also more consistent than either of the two others. It has a greater verisimilitude than they have, and is full of touches which recall the experiences of human life. It will be noticed by an attentive reader that the twelve days during which air lay in a trance after he was slain, coincide with the time passed by the spirits in their pilgrimage. It is a curious observation, not often made, that good men who have lived in a well-governed city, shall we say in a religious and respectable society, 
are more likely to make mistakes in their choice of life than those who have had more experience of the world and of evil it is a more familiar remark that we constantly blame others when we have only ourselves to blame and the philosopher must acknowledge however reluctantly that there is an element of chance in human life with which it is sometimes impossible for man to cope that men drink more of the waters of forgetfulness than is good for them is a poetical description of a familiar truth we have many of us known men who like odysseus have wearied of ambition and have only desired rest we should like to know what became of the infants dying almost as soon as they were born but plato only raises without satisfying our curiosity the two companies of souls ascending and descending at either chasm of heaven and earth and conversing when they come out into the meadow the majestic figures of the judges sitting in heaven the voice heard by Ardeus, are features of the great allegory which have an indescribable grandeur and power the remark already made respecting the inconsistency of the two other myths must be extended also to this it is at once an orrery or model of the heavens and a picture of the day of judgment the three myths are unlike anything else in plato there is an oriental or rather an egyptian element in them and they have an affinity to the mysteries and to the orphic modes of worship to a certain extent they are un-greek at any rate there is hardly anything like them in other greek writings which have a serious purpose in spirit they are medieval they are akin to what may be termed the underground religion in all ages and countries they are presented in the most lively and graphic manner but they are never insisted on as true it is only affirmed that nothing better can be said about a future life plato seems to make use of them when he has reached the limits of human knowledge or to borrow an expression of his own when he is standing on the outside of the intellectual world they are very simple in style a few touches bring the picture home to the mind and make it present to us they have also a kind of authority gained by the employment of sacred and familiar names just as mere fragments of the words of scripture put together in any form and applied to any subject have a power of their own they are a substitute for poetry and mythology and they are also a reform of mythology the moral of them may be summed up in a word or two after death the judgment and there is some better thing remaining for the good than for the evil all literature gathers into itself many elements of the past for example the tale of the earth-born men in the republic appears at first sight to be an extravagant fancy but it is restored to propriety when we remember that it is based on a legendary belief the art of making stories of ghosts and apparitions credible is said to consist in the manner of telling them the effect is gained by many literary and conversational devices such as the previous raising of curiosity the mention of little circumstances simplicity picturesqueness the naturalness of the occasion and the like this art is possessed by plato 
in a degree which has never been equaled. The myth in the Phaedrus is even greater than the myths which have been already described, but is of a different character. It treats of a former rather than of a future life. It represents the conflict of reason aided by passion or righteous indignation on the one hand, and of the animal lusts and instincts on the other. The soul of man has followed the company of some god, and seen truth in the form of the universal before it was born in this world. Our present life is the result of the struggle which was then carried on. This world is relative to a former world, as it is often projected into a future. We ask the question, where were men before birth? As we likewise inquire, what will become of them after death? The first question is unfamiliar to us, and therefore seems to be unnatural. But if we survey the whole human race, it has been as influential and as widely spread as the other. In the Phaedrus, it is really a figure of speech, in which the spiritual combat of this life is represented. The majesty and power of the whole passage, especially of what may be called the theme or proem, beginning the mind through all her being is immortal, can only be rendered very inadequately in another language. The myth in the statesman relates to a former cycle of existence, in which men were born of the earth, and by the reversal of the earth's motion, had their lives reversed and were restored to youth and beauty. The dead came to life, the old grew middle-aged, and the middle-aged young. The youth became a child, the child an infant, the infant vanished into the earth. The connection between the reversal of the earth's motion and the reversal of human life is of course verbal only, yet Plato, like theologians in other ages, argues from the consistency of the tale to its truth. The new order of the world was immediately under the government of God. It was a state of innocence in which men had neither wants nor cares, in which the earth brought forth all things spontaneously. And God was to man what man now is to the animals. There were no great estates or families or private possessions, nor any traditions of the past, because men were all born out of the earth. This is what Plato calls the reign of Kronos, and in like manner he connects the reversal of the earth's motion with some legend of which he himself was probably the inventor. The question is then asked, under which of these two cycles of existence was man the happier, under that of Kronos, which was a state of innocence, or that of Zeus, which is our ordinary life. For a while Plato balances the two sides of the serious controversy, which he has suggested in a figure. The answer depends on another question. What use did the children of Kronos make of their time? They had boundless leisure and the faculty of discoursing, not only with one another, but with the animals. Did they employ these advantages with a view to philosophy? gathering from every nature some addition to their store of knowledge? Or did they pass their time in eating and drinking and telling stories to one another and to the beasts? In either case, there would be no difficulty in answering. But then, 
as Plato rather mischievously adds, nobody knows what they did, and therefore the doubt must remain undetermined. To the first there succeeds a second epoch, after another natural convulsion in which the order of the world and of human life is once more reversed. God withdraws his guiding hand, and man is left to the government of himself. The world begins again, and arts and laws are slowly and painfully invented. A secular age succeeds to a theocratical. In this fanciful tale, Plato has dropped, or almost dropped, the garb of mythology. He suggests several curious and important thoughts, such as the possibility of a state of innocence, the existence of a world without traditions, and the difference between human and divine government. He has also carried a step further his speculations concerning the abolition of the family and of property, which he supposes to have no place among the children of Kronos, any more than in the ideal state. It is characteristic of Plato and of his age to pass from the abstract to the concrete, from poetry to reality. Language is the expression of the seen, and also of the unseen, and moves in a region between them. A great writer knows how to strike both these chords, sometimes remaining within the sphere of the visible, and then again comprehending a wider range and soaring to the abstract and universal. Even in the same sentence he may employ both modes of speech, not improperly or inharmoniously. It is useless to criticize the broken metaphors of Plato. If the effect of the whole is to create a picture, not such as can be painted on canvas, but which is full of life and meaning to the reader, a poem may be contained in a word or two which may call up not one but many latent images, or half reveal to us by a sudden flash the thoughts of many hearts. Often the rapid transition from one image to another is pleasing to us. On the other hand, any single figure of speech, if too often repeated, or worked out too much at length, becomes prosy and monotonous. In theology and philosophy, we necessarily include both the moral law within and the starry heaven above, and pass from one to the other. Compare, for examples, Psalms 18 and 19. Whether such a use of language is puerile or noble depends upon the genius of the writer or speaker and the familiarity of the associations employed. In the myths and parables of Plato, the ease and grace of conversation is not forgotten. They are spoken, not written words, stories which are told to a living audience, and so well told that we are more than half inclined to believe them, compare Phaedrus. As in conversation, too, the striking image or figure of speech is not forgotten, but is quickly caught up and alluded to again and again as it would still be in our own day in a genial and sympathetic society. The descriptions of Plato have a greater life and reality than is to be found in any modern writing. This is due to their homeliness and simplicity. Plato can do with words just as he pleases, 
to him they are indeed more plastic than wax republic we are in the habit of opposing speech and writing poetry and prose but he has discovered a use of language in which they are united which gives a fitting expression to the highest truths and in which the trifles of courtesy and the familiarities of daily life are not overlooked end of part 4 recording by kevin johnson